Baseball and Umpire fans, and welcome to The Leading Edge, where we talk with umpires about umpiring and look to cover topics on both sides of the plate. Joining us on this episode is an individual that started umpiring at the age of 30, has umpired at 17 and supervised at eight Baseball Canada National Championships, has worked seven international events, including the 2008 Olympics in Beijing, China, and like every good prairie boy, spends his spare time throwing rocks at houses. That umpire, Brian Hodgson. Topics covered include his illustrious baseball career as a player, the time a Baseball Canada rep got chased out of town at a senior national, earning himself the title Big Shooter at an international event in Panama, working the 1999 Pan American Games in his home province of Winnipeg, Manitoba, and the time he got to work with Mike Estabrook, Scott Barry, and Adrian Johnson, as well as play Texas Hold'em poker with Alfonso Marquez and Ted Barrett at the 2005-2006 Olympic qualifier in Phoenix, Arizona. So sit back, relax, get ready. It's coming! Hello, baseball and umpire fans, and welcome to The Leading Edge, where we talk with umpires about umpiring and look to cover topics on both sides of the plate. Ah, uh, isn't it nice? Most of us are finally getting back on the diamond getting the opportunity to work some baseball that we might not have been able to over the past couple of years due to the pandemic. It's so great to be back, reconnecting with everybody, some long lost acquaintances and getting back out to do what we really enjoy doing and that's umpiring baseball. Now, before we get going, I really wanna share a fun story I've had over the past couple of weeks. I'm proud of myself. I finally earned another Saskatchewan badge, something that I can keep close to my heart. Gonna lay the scene for you. We're in the middle of Saskatchewan. Field on the left, field on the right, road straight ahead, road straight behind. It's a gorgeous day. It's perfect. There's really no wind, which is unusual. Sky's blue. You can see for miles. My wife and kids are in the car and we're driving to visit some family. As I said, it's a clear day and you can see for miles. So we're driving and in the distance, you can see there's something on the road. Now, one thing I've learned living in the prairie is when you see something in the distance, that distance is probably like two to three kilometers away. So you can see a long ways. And being the fantastic passenger seat traveler my wife is, she's having a nap. But she's really good at knowing when I slow down that something might be going on. So as I approach closer, I'm starting to slow down. I'm like, hmm, what's on the road? At first I went, oh, it might be a dog. And like anything, you don't want to hit a dog. But as I get closer, I start to realize it's, it's, it's a cow. It's not just any cow, it's a calf, a young cow. I then look to the right and you can see some cows in the field beside the road. So I'm like, uh-oh, this calf has got out of their pen. For any non-prey person, I've learned this, a pen is simply just a field with some wire so that it contains the cattle. So I'm like, oh no. This can't be good. This calf has gotten out of that pen and, you know, I don't want to hit it. I don't want to see this calf get hit by a car or a truck. So I pull off to the side of the road and I say, you know what? I'm going to get out and see if I can scuttle this cattle back into its pen. So the first thing I do is I get out of the car. I then walk out in a big loop to try to get in front of the calf so that I can really shoo it back onto the right side of the road. I don't want to see the calf go on the other side of the road in the ditch and then I'm chasing it all around. Ah, one for one, got the calf going where I wanted to. I'm feeling proud of myself. 
The difficult thing is the gate is not open. Now this panner corral, or whatever we want to call it, the way that the gate opens is you pull a chain and it unlatches from a nail and one of the posts fall down and the barbed wire then falls to the ground and you can walk over the barbed wire. Great, I've assessed how we're gonna try to get this cow back into its pen. I dropped the gate. Unfortunately, this calf has now moved its way down the fence line in the opposite direction of the gate because as I'm quickly learning, every good calf never really goes where you want it to go. But it's okay. I've only been here like 30 seconds, so I feel like I'm making pretty good progress and the calf is not on the road right now. So now I'm wearing Birkenstocks and I'm trying to make a big loop in the ditch so that the calf can stay in front of me because if I come up behind it, I'm really worried that it's gonna take off and run away from me and that's not gonna be good because the calf is gonna be running away from the open gate. So I make this loop, I'm able to stay in front of the calf the whole time, the calf kind of backs itself into the fence. So I am so excited. At this point, I'm thinking, oh, I'm smarter than a calf. This is prime rib. But then the tides tilt in the calf's favor. We lock eyes, stare into the depths of each other's soul, each grit our teeth, and the calf goes, Mmm. And then I think I peed a little. Because this calf takes three hard strides right at me and then cuts 90 degrees down the fence line towards the open gate. For a split second, I thought my life was over. But no, no, we're making progress. That calf is going to the open gate and I'm cheering inside. I'm like, oh my God, he's gonna do it. I'm gonna be a rock star. And then he stops, like three feet shy of the gate. And I'm like, darn it. So I walk slowly up behind him. Slowly, I don't want to go too quick. I don't want to scare him. I don't want to make him jut off the other way. So I'm trying to talk to it like we're best friends. And he's looking over his shoulder at me, probably laughing inside, and rightfully so. And I manage to catch up to this calf. I'm able to pet the top of its head, touch its back, try to be, you know, friendly. I only got a budget about three or four feet. I don't really want to grab onto it too hard because let's be honest, it's not my calf. It's not my cattle. I don't want to be responsible for ruining somebody else's livelihood. But thinking, hey, we only got a couple feet. Let's see if I can start nudging this cattle, pushing it, maybe just put my arm around its neck and lead it towards the gate. You know what? I make a foot. I make another foot. Took about 10 seconds. You know, the cattle was really hesitant to move and Rightly so. Probably the most entertainment this guy's got all day. Now, we get to the open part of the gate, big gate. The one thing that's really interesting is it's easy to make a cow go straight. It's really difficult to make them go lateral. So to go side to side. So I got to get this calf to make a 90 degree turn into this pen. So to avoid getting shook off or falling down on all the barbed wire, I let go of the calf and start nudging it. Well, the calf just goes straight, blows right past the gate. So now I feel like I'm back to square one. Now I'm gonna be honest, we were on a time crunch and I needed to get to our family function. So I head back to the car. I get in the car and my wife's laughing at me because I definitely look like a fish out of water there. She goes, why didn't you just get behind the calf and push it in? I'm like, you don't get behind calves, they kick. My wife quickly educated me that it's horses that kick backwards, not cows. 
they'll sometimes actually kick to the side. So she's kind of giggling at me now. So I start the car and kind of slowly pull away. And I watch this calf sit there on the fence line and I'm like, you're giggling at me. You know what? My pride's on the line here. I'm getting back out and I'm going to try it again. As I get out, my father-in-law, who we're going to the same function, pulls up behind us and I wave him down and say, let's get this calf back in the pen now. So we go out, open the gate again. He goes to one end. I go to the other. And through the magic of using two people, one to steer him one way and the other one to steer him the other, we managed to get this calf back in a pen. But not any pen. Not the one we wanted. The one right beside it. The different field that just at that spot had split. And there was a fence line that went north to south and not east to west. But interestingly enough, as we get this cow back in the pen, there's a vehicle that pulls up on the side of the road and two people get out. One has a look of concern and one's really kind of giggling and smiling. So I instantly ask, are these your cattle? And the lady laughs and goes, yeah, they are. And then she asks, what happened? I then respond, well, we were driving and, and before I could respond, she goes, the calf was on the road, wasn't it? And because, well, I'm a well-seasoned cowboy now, I went, yes, ma'am. She then asks, you didn't happen to see the ear tag number on that calf, did you? Was it number 24? And I reply, yes, ma'am. Now, considering that we got the calf in the wrong pen, I'm feeling awful right now. And I go, I'm sorry, the, the calf's over in that pen. I think it came from this one. And she starts laughing. She goes, that calf spends more time out of the pen than it does in the pen. So... Don't worry about it. Elise is not on the road. And what I assume is her husband, he looks over at her and goes, yeah, well, for now it's not. She reassures me it's no big deal and sends me on my way and thanks us for, you know what, getting the calf back in the pen and making sure it's not hurt. So that's the story of earning my latest Saskatchewan badge. I finally got to wrestle a calf back into a pen. Considering the work that went on, I just want to send a big shout out to all our farmers and ranchers here on the prairies and wherever you are, considering the tough year that it's been drought-wise, and there's no question that you're feeling the pinches of increased prices in fuel, feed, fertilizer, whatever it is, just want to say thank you for doing what you do. I got to live your life for five minutes, and I think I learned a lot. So thank you for all you do. Moving on with the show, our last guest came on was Mike Doucette, longtime umpire in the Baseball Canada National Umpire Program the current president of the New Brunswick Baseball Umpires Association, and the current president of AtlanticOfficials.ca. On that last episode, we got to discuss his various Baseball Canada National Championship experiences, what it's like to be a provincial supervisor or a president in a Baseball Canada umpire program, and we also got to hear a little new perspective of what it's like to chair or be on a Baseball Canada National Championship host committee. So, Mike, I just want to send a shout-out. Thanks for coming on and sharing with us your experiences, and if anyone's looking for it, you can find it on Podbean, Spotify, iTunes, YouTube, Facebook, TuneIn, Apple iTunes Podcasts. Anywhere you really podcast, you should be able to find it. Now, I'm saying that and you're listening to it, so wherever you found this episode, you can probably find it there. Now, one caveat, I just want to shout out that I got an email here recently. Facebook is deactivating podcasts from their platform. 
I think there's only two or three of mine that are up there, but in the future, you're not going to be able to listen to podcasts on Facebook. You'll be able to find the links that I post for Podbean on Facebook, but specifically an auto start on Facebook, you won't be able to listen to it there. But don't worry too hard. There's lots of other places where you can find it. Now, since we're speaking of Facebook, check us out, Leading Edge Umpire Stories on Facebook. Go there and share with us some of your experiences. Make comments about the show, who you want to hear, what you want to hear. Go, make this show yours and give us some feedback. We'd love to take it. That's Leading Edge Umpire Stories on Facebook. Okay, this intro is way longer than I have ever expected it. So without further ado, Leading Edge Umpire Entertainment is proud to introduce an individual that has umpired at 17 Baseball Canada National Championships and has supervised at an additional eight, worked the 1997 Canada Games in Brandon, Manitoba, has umpired seven international baseball events, including the 2008 Olympic Games in Beijing, China, and an individual that will only accept grilled onions on any park burger, Brian Hodgson. Brian, welcome to The Leading Edge. Thank you for having me. Well, Brian, the pleasure's all mine. You're going to be the fourth Olympian we've featured here on this show, so I look forward to this. We've put a little work into it communicated here and there but after a few months you know what we're going to make it happen so let's get going let's go for it okay brian the first thing we do is we always love to give the guests the opportunity to defend themselves in their playing career brian did you play baseball and were you any good absolutely i did i played 15 years with the carmen gold eyes and uh, that was a senior team close to the, where i grew up and i played there until i started umpiring we well, say that with a lot of confidence. Oh, absolutely, I did. Now you gotta. We we were a fairly decent outfit, and uh, I attended as a player probably half a dozen national tournaments. So that was mostly in the junior and the senior ranks. Now, Brian, I always try to do my research before our guests come on, and I did check out the Baseball Manitoba Hall of Fame, and you are a member there as an umpire. I hope to talk about that later, but you are also a member there as a player from a team. Give us some of the backstory to that. I came from the small town of Roland, which is about uh, 15, 20 miles from Carmen. And as a 15, 16-year-old, the, uh, the teams kind of petered out in Roland. So if, in looking at where should I play next, uh, Carmen had a, a newly erected junior team. So I actually started playing junior baseball as a 16-year-old in Carm playing for the Carmen Gold Eyes. We had a core of guys that were all my age, and we went right from the 16-year-olds right to 30-year-olds. And there was about six, seven, eight of us that were the basis of that organization for many years. Ryan, just to clarify for our listeners, there's been lots of changes to the age groups over the years. But at that time, what age group did Junior go up to? Uh, 21 years old. 21. So here yeah. you are playing with individuals five, six years older than you. Yeah, absolutely I did, yeah. And uh, I played five years of, ju of junior baseball. Never played midget. Got to share with us then. What position did you play? Uh, I was kind of a, a catch-all kind of a guy. I, I, I caught a lot. I played outfield a lot. I would say outfield and catching was basically the two positions I played the most. Now, we hear this a lot from umpires. A lot of them seem to have a catching background. So I asked the same question over and over. Were you good at calling pitches then as you are now? Uh <laughs> 
that's an unfair question. I guess so. I mean, I I, I talk to umpires, and, and as an umpire, I appreciate the the catchers talking to me. So, uh, I I suppose I I I was. I'll tell you how I got into umpiring if you want to know. Well, there we're, we're going to get to that. So let let's okay. let's hear it. As I was nearing the end of my career as a player, I was catching one night, and the, the guy that was umpiring that night was the guy that does all the assigning. His name was Sam Tascona. He is a, a member of the Manitoba Baseball Hall of Fame as well. Long-time administrator and umpire, and he was umpiring that night. And from the first pitch to the last pitch, he probably was whispering in my ear about umpiring a hundred times. And I was trying to ignore him. And uh, I guess somehow he, he got me to say yes. And I was umpiring a junior game the very next night. <laughs> so you're umpiring against the same people. No, this you would have been senior then. No, I was senior at that point. Yes, I was close to 30 years old at that time. So, uh, And then I ended up playing another two or three years and umpiring at the same time before I said, well, that's enough. Of I, I was umpiring <laughs> way more than I was playing, so I might as well stop this playing aspect. And, and I, I strictly went into the umpiring part of it. Well, Brian, considering the career that you have, I find it interesting that you mentioned that you started umpiring at the age of 30. We always hear about recruitment trying to get individuals around the age of, you know, what, 16, 17. In your mm -hmm. opinion, how do you think that experience helped you become the umpire that you became? Well, I, I guess as a catcher, I was used to seeing the ball coming across the plate. I mean, right. that that helps. I mean, and I played at a high level, so I knew the ins and outs of the anticipation part of it. I knew the hierarchy of, as far as the, manage, the management and, the, uh, and and a lot of the, the team personnel, especially from the coaching aspect. Okay. So that helped. My The first clinic I attended was as a 30 year old was at a level three clinic three years later i was a level four doing a national so i mean that's how quickly it could happen at, at least at that point in time i don't think it happens like that now but i'll kind of agree with you that it doesn't happen today but i don't speak for baseball canada but baseball canada has a level system and you work your way up but let's be honest your ability really dictates the baseball that you're going to umpire you know, sure. yeah it, and, and then you say you, you knew the hierarchy I mean, you're an outfielder, so you knew how to uh, chase chase fly balls, so you must have had a little bit of good... Read a fly ball. Or, sorry, read a fly ball. Here, I'm trying to find my words. Exactly. So having that baseball experience is huge. Absolutely it is. And you know what? I feel this is an appropriate time to talk about this because recently I was at a meeting for a local minor baseball association. Concerns were access to umpires and having individuals umpire. Now, we all know there is a shortage of umpires today. One of the things that was recommended was that if an umpire is registered to umpire and they're playing on a team, that if they have to miss a practice to go umpire, it's okay. They should just go umpire because we need umpires more. Now, people who know me know I am pro-umpire. I really vouch for umpires. We'll stand up for umpires. We need umpires. We need development. We need all that stuff. One thing I cannot support is taking kids away from playing the game so they can go umpire. No, that is a definite no-no in my books. Yes, it might help us tonight, sure, but it's not helping us long-term if these kids are interested in umpiring. Your playing career is only a, a finite period of time, <laughs> it, and, and it, by the color of my hair, you can see that uh, uh, umpiring can be a long, long term. <laughs> you have all your 
life, rest of your life to, to umpire. 100% agree. The beautiful thing about umpiring is that it allows people to stay in the game or be part of a game at a level that they might not have ever been part of. Look at Major League umpires. Look at Joe West. Do you think Joe West be playing baseball at 67? Knowing Joe West, I, he probably could do it. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I guess we figured out why you got into umpiring. Now, you mentioned that you kind of knew people around the Manitoba baseball scene. Share with us, do you have any memorable provincial championships in Manitoba? I hear that it can get quite hot and testy there at provincial time. You know, uh, yeah, it, I mean, there's lots, of, there's lots of games, and uh, I really can't remember anything that was too controversial, but, nope. but you're right, there, there were lots of games, and, and, and they've, they've geared down the provincials in Manitoba. At one time, there'd be 15 teams playing for a... For like a like a midget championship, for instance, right. and there was a gazillion games, so you had to have a lot of umpires come in. And some of them weren't very good. Yeah. So, I mean, that I remember more about that than uh, contested provincial championships within Manitoba. Now we all get into our own provinces and do our own provincial championships. You mentioned that maybe umpires had to travel in, or people had to get together. What are your memories around just? People getting together to enjoy officiating oh, a championship. Oh, that, that, that's a whole different aspect. <laughs> <laughs> we can do a whole different show on this one, can we? Well, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and you, yeah, that, is, that is good because, you know, yes, you have that issue at a national championship as well, but at a provincial championship, a lot of these guys that come in do a provincial are doing it for the first or second time, and they may be coming from an area of the province that but maybe the baseball is not quite the same there as right. it would at another and, and they're at a totally different level of competence so right. there there's guys coming to these provincial championships with all different uh, uh goals Fair. yes there are guys trying to reach that next level on the ladder uh, but there's other guys coming there just a, a weekend away from the wife <laughs> i hear you and again, it all depends on where, what you're striving to do. There are right. lots of guys that come to provincials that that's that's their ultimate goal. I mean, right. that's that's the pinnacle, and and they won't get any better, and they won't go they won't go any further. But for others, that's just another stepping stone. Right, and I think it's important for everyone to respect what everyone's goals are, because that's really what makes umpiring enjoyable. Mm -hmm. Okay, since we're talking championships, we're going to get into the Baseball Canada National Championships. Roughly how many have you worked or been part of? Well, uh, you, you sent me the list here, so I, I actually went in and looked, and then 25. 25, eight, wow. Eight, eight as a supervisor and 17 as a working umpire. Okay, let's start with working umpire. Okay. You have a highlight, you know, you have 17 there. Is there a championship that stands out the most? I would say the first couple because... The first couple, I'm just getting my feet wet, right? I'm I'm the rookie guy there, yep. And uh, getting my feet wet, more and watching some of the the older guys. I mean, I was in my 30s at that time myself, but there were lots of guys that obviously that were older than that, and just to seeing how they handled themselves. Not so much the balls and the strikes. That's I mean, everybody's kind of similar to that in that respect, but how they dealt with the manager, how they dealt with the shift of mission off the field, how they how they reacted to criticism from the supervisor, those those type of things, those are what I I was more uh, 
consumed with. Right. In something you don't get to really do on a regular basis or an every day at your Tuesday night ballpark, but it's an environment that you need to have a little bit of experience there to appreciate it. Well, I mean, realistically, when you get to the national level, the, the difference in umpiring is, I mean, we're talking, you know, yeah. small, small, small. And, but off the field, you, you, you got to learn how to network and you got to speak to the right people. Yep. Stay away from the wrong people. Yep. I mean, it's, that's, that's, you're going to, you're going to progress and reach that next rung in the ladder a lot quicker if you mind your P's and Q's that way. 100%. And we hear it all the time in life, I think, especially today with the social media generation, but image is huge. You got to oh, be professional. Huge, huge, huge. And you got to put off the right vibe and, you know, be a professional. It, some people have it and some people don't. And it's something I think that people grow. I, I'm going to tell you, I wasn't the professional era 10, 15 years ago that I feel like I am today. No, having said that, if, you, if you're asking me, I've, I do remember a couple of incidences. I, in, a, in a gold medal game, I threw out the manager of the host team that was in the gold medal game. <laughs> oh. I mean, and the only reason he was thrown out is because his team was losing. I mean, right. that, was, yeah. that was the only reason he got thrown out. But I do remember that at plain as day because this guy was a, it was, a, it was a Windsor manager and he was a, being a paid, he was a paid employee. He wasn't oh, just, he big, was one of those kind of guys. Big deal. So, so need need to make sure that that job yeah, was still there. He, get, he was getting his money's worth. I was going to save this for a little while, but since you mentioned Windsor, I'm going to ask it now. I need, okay. I've heard some stories about Windsor, but I really would love to hear about the van. <laughs> the van okay uh what's the van I, I was the i was the umpire in chief for the province at the time and that was when the the first single site tournament occurred and it was in windsor ontario so the way it worked is uh half the tournaments were one week and the other half were the second week and we cooked a deal with baseball canada to we asked them is it okay if we all travel together and we'll all work either the first half tournaments or the second half tournaments and they said absolutely so i can't remember what was the first half or the second <laughs> half but anyway yes and larry nichols was one of the supervisors going to the tournament at that and he worked in Killarney, Manitoba, and and had knowledge of a hutterite colony that uh, had this this van, and it was it was your typical diesel, you know, uh, fifteen passenger van, but they threw in a utility trailer. <laughs> so we had I don't know how many guys went to Windsor that particular year? I'm going to say probably nine guys that, that were working, nine including uh, supervisors. And uh, we all jumped in this van at five o'clock one evening and uh, threw our, all our bags in this utility trailer that was we were towing and away we went. And you should have seen the looks when we pulled into the border because we went, the way we went, we went through the States. Okay. So we went through Emerson and then Minneapolis and Chicago and around round of it and so we got there well, well let me talk to you say the 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 best part with it with the, the united states border uh, patrol 
we get we come to you're you're going where we're going to windsor that's in canada well no we're going to go through the states because it's shorter and you're pulling that trailer what's in the trailer well there's that's all our equipment and the guy looked and there was a dozen bags of umpire equipment right right and he took he opened up a couple of them yeah they're they're somewhere (laughs) you guys are crazy (laughs) so we drove all night we we left at five o'clock winnipeg time on five o'clock one evening we drove all night and we pulled into windsor at four o'clock in the afternoon the next day so 23 hours later we got to uh windsor straight or was there shifts or did it oh no we, we took turns driving but uh it was a long haul <laughs> so you had there was two criteria to that week was there you needed to have a passport well yes that was true yeah, <laughs> and you needed to be able to drive a 15 passenger van <laughs> yeah oh that was it was that was easy that was that was the easy part <laughs> it was putting up with a dozen guys in a uh, in a fifteen passenger van for twenty four hours. That was the problem. Was there, was there any adult beverages consumed on that trip? Uh, I don't remember. <laughs> uh, I would say there was one or two for sure. So the other the other thing about that that tournament that you may not know, and this was a uh, that was the year. Do you, do you recall? The, the big hydro outage. The blackout. It, it, from Ontario to all the way to the eastern seaboard. Yes. Well, that, it hit us. We were actually doing a game at the second site in Tecumseh in the afternoon. And this was a Friday afternoon. And we were doing the game, and we all of a sudden the scoreboard was out. Okay. In the middle of the game, the scoreboard was gone. And we didn't really pay any attention to, to you know, it was... Yep. Three o'clock in the afternoon. Okay, and we get to the end of the game, and and we, and they tell us, well, the the hydro is out from, from Toronto all the way to New York City. We're in Tecumseh, which is I don't know how many miles from Windsor, but the the next crew coming in for the the next game, it was just snarled traffic everywhere because none of the lights were working. Right, it was it was just a mess. So they said you guys are going to have to stay and do do the next game because the other crew can't get here right so i was the crew chief and i i was on the basis and i was this, the uh the relegation guy their spare guy so i i i put the stuff on to start this this next game and and the, and the regular crew showed up and i i don't know i did two or three innings no big deal so we go back to our dorms we were in high-rise uh uh University style university dorms. status dorms kind of thing, and I was rooming with John Oko. That's who I was rooming with. Alberta, and we got there, and we didn't have hydro for a day and a half. Oh, and so that means that means no hot water, no hot water, no water pressure, no water pressure, no water pressure. We we were lucky. We got back in time. I was able to have a shower, but by by the time I was done, there was like no water pressure at all. And the city of Windsor got into big, 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 big trouble because they brought in generators so that the baseball can can continue. So they had lights and they were having night baseball and the hospitals didn't even have hydro. Oh, oh no. Well, you can imagine the backlash. Right. The backlash. And baseball, they're still playing baseball at nine o'clock at night and we don't have 
hydro. Yep. In the middle of the summertime, everyone's hot. Sticky. It was sticky, sticky, sticky hot. It was terrible. And down there in southern Ontario, be humid as can be. Oh, it was awful. Just absolutely awful. Anyway, that's that's what I remember from that tournament. Brian, thank you for sharing the van story out of Windsor. I always thought it was folklore. I've heard it many a time, so I'm glad I got to hear it kind of right from the horse's mouth. <laughs> but I have to ask, you say it was a hot, sticky tournament. What was the drive home like? Ugh. Well, it was pretty quiet because uh, there was a few late nights right near the end. So, you you know, typical, typical guy. So it was pretty quiet. It was way, 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 way quieter on the way home. Quiet always works. Now, Brian, it is a Canada Games year, so I want to highlight that. And I want to highlight that because Canada Games is a pretty prestigious event for a lot of umpires in this country. You can really only go once. Now, Brian, if I'm not mistaken, you have a Canada Games under your belt. Am I correct? Uh, as an ump, I, I did one Canada Games as an umpire and one Canada Games as a supervisor. Where was your Canada Games as an umpire? It was in Brandon, actually. Nice, only a couple hours from Carmen. Mm-hmm. Brian, how was that experience? What was it like being a Canada Games umpire in your home province? It was a big deal because, uh, number one, the baseball was way better at that time because right. it, they still included the 21 year. It was a junior tournament. Right. And now, they backed the, the the age group way 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 back. To Seventeen or eighteen now. Yeah, so, you know, we had guys like Stubby Clap there for God's sakes. Uh, <laughs> Interesting that you mentioned that name because I'm going to talk about it later. Oh, okay, all right. So, yeah. No, no, but but so you had some you but, had some up and comers then. Oh, there were some there were some studs that were the 21 year old studs like the BC team and the Quebec team and the Ontario team were just lights out good but the umpiring was real lights out good too so <laughs> who are some of the umpires you got to work there you remember that well cory davis was there uh ed quinlan was on my crew that year okay ron shuchuk was there there were some good umpires uh, don gilbert was supervising it, it there was it was really good it was really good baseball and really good umpiring i thought i'll give you one story we initiated some of the other officials because when you when you're an umpire, you're just one of the officials, right? There, every sport is happening there, right. and we were staying in a in a hotel, motel kind of thing. They like <laughs> they had a three story hotel part, but they had a wing, which was motel. You could drive right up to the door, and it was perfect. So there was us there. There was the basketball guys, the softball guys, the soccer guys. And we were on the wing that had the motels. So we decided, well, listen, we got to have a patio party. So every night we would pull all the furniture out of these motel units and set it up on the sidewalk or the parking lot in front of these rooms. And we would sit there and, and we would that's where we would entertain each other for the rest of the night. Well, it, it got later and later and later, and we're still sitting out there. And all of a sudden, we look over, and there's the soccer officials going out for their 5 a.m. run, you know. <laughs> their supervisor were making them do their two-mile jog or whatever they did. And here, the baseball umpires were still out <laughs> in the patio. <laughs> it was still 9 in the evening. Yeah. I, I do remember that one. Well, I've had the chance to see a picture from that, and I know some guys that were on that crew. I think, what, you had uh, Bucky Finland or Bill Fenlon from New Brunswick? 
Yes, like, that's you, correct. Uh, yeah. That was 1997. And then Yves Gagnon from um, from Quebec. Yes. And then I think what Lauren Lustel from Saskatchewan. Lauren Lustel was there. And then I think Joe Smith was another one there from Saskatchewan. Joe Smith was on my crew with Ed Quinlan. That was uh, that was our crew. What Keith a, Johnson was there from Manitoba. Yeah, you had three there that year, but that's not uncommon if you're if the Canada yes, games are at, in at the at that province. time. That was not uncommon. Like you said, Corey Davis. There there was some there was some. Some names that are still around the program today and some that have, you know, moved on various reasons. And I got to ask, and I've been asked to ask this. I'm not going to say who, but Daryl Beckett asked me. He goes, whatever happened to the mustache? My mustache? Oh, yeah. That was your signature stash. Well, it it got it got white and gray. And so I figured, wow, Jesus Christ, I don't want to be... I don't want to be looking like Methuselah out there, so I, I once it got too white, I just cut it off. Oh, fair enough. Then, for everyone <laughs> listening, I'm going to throw a link in the show description to a picture of that crew, so that everyone can look at it and appreciate Brian's mustache. <laughs> <laughs> we actually had three Manitoba umpires in the gold medal game that day, that year. Oh, three out of four. And there was the four three- there that year. Four four umpires in the gold medal Sorry. game. And, yep, and three th- three of them were from Manitoba. Wow. And who was the other one? Keith Johnston was his name. And who was the fourth umpire on that crew then? Uh, I believe it was Corey Davis. I believe so as well. Yeah, so a former guest here in Leading Edge, Corey Davis. Another one, Ron Suchuk. And I don't have Keith Johnson, but now I got Brian. So I got this show, I'm just proud to say, three of the <laughs> four gold medal guys in the, the game from 1997 Canada Games. we got to celebrate Canada Games years. <laughs> and I'm, you know, let's throw it out there with all the people that we know who could be going. I think right now we know this year, uh, Sean Sullivan's going out of British Columbia, out of Alberta. We have Chris Hartley and Don Buskis out of Saskatchewan. We have Hot Greg, I believe out of Manitoba. We got Daryl Beckett. And as mm-hmm. far east as I can think, I haven't heard much about Central Canada, but I know that New Brunswick is sending bull Brian Cummings. Um, sorry, Brian, nicknamed Bull Cummings, and I guess the and Ryan Garland out of Newfoundland. So you know, a big year. It's it's always something to celebrate with our with our various provinces. So just want to wish everyone good luck and have fun, make it a memorable experience. Now we're still on the national championships. We talked about a gold medal game. Is there is there an assignment that you've gotten over the years that really st- sticks to your heart a little bit more than others, or just? Well, I've I, I did the, I did one gold medal, and I think it's only the only reason I did one gold medal plate is because uh, we had a situation during the Rob Robin where we had multiple ejections, and I was involved in about three of them. So <laughs> <laughs> that was an, actually a waiver. That must be a it senior was, championship. It was a senior championship. Oh, right, I got to tell you a story. Do you, do you know a guy by the name of Wally Foots? No, I've never heard of Wally. He comes out of Edmonton. Okay. And he ran, used to remember when Edmonton ran all those international tournaments, he was always involved. Yep. Always involved. Anyway, he was a baseball Canada guy that was running this particular tournament. It was a senior tournament. Senior tournament is 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 rife with this this situation because they never know who's going to be there until the you know the day of the tournament. So the day of the tournament comes and they only have seven teams. Okay. So the, the schedule that they had drawn up was for eight or ten or whatever. So what the hell are we going to do now? Well, they decided, well, everybody's going to play their four games, and you, you're going to play your four teams' games, and, and you may play two of the same as me, and this guy may play three of the same. And at the end of the day, we're not going to have 
any tiebreakers. It's just based on formula. So there's seven teams. <laughs> we go into the final day. The host team is 3-0, and and they're saving their two pro pitchers for the playoffs. They ask the host committee, Wally Foote, the supervisor, the Baseball Canada rep, is there any chance that we won't make the playoffs? And he looked at, no, you're 3-0, blah, blah, blah. And no, there's no way that you're not going to be in the playoffs. So they proceeded to throw their bat boy. They got mercy and they ended up three and one. The rest of the day was upset, 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 upset. And 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 the, the final standings came out. There are five teams that are three and one. Okay. And two and two are 0 and four. Oh, five teams, four slots, not looking good. Well, now they go to the run for the run formula. Well, the host team got mercyed. They're out. <laughs> They were drawing 3,000 fans a game. They rode Howie or uh, Wally Foots out of town on a rail. Their two best pitchers never threw a pitch, and they're out of the tournament. <laughs> Just goes to show you can only play for today. Don't play for tomorrow. <laughs> Sorry, Wally. I hope you're not listening. <laughs> yeah, I can see where that would have got a little testy. Just just your lead into the story. Oh, we're just going to go by formula. You can only think, oh, this is not going to end very well. No, it did not end well. well. It's always really disappointing and heartbreaking to see teams eliminated based on math. (laughs) Going to throw a little post-show out of here since we're talking about math and getting eliminated. If you don't already know, MLB has eliminated game 163 or the play-in playoff game. So this year, we might actually see a team eliminated from Major League Baseball based on math. I can only imagine that that is going to go down very well. So congratulations, MLB. If you're looking for the opportunity to learn from example, check out this story with Wally Foots. Tiebreakers based on math never end well. Now, for those listening, in case you don't know, here is the tie-breaking formula that Major League Baseball plans on using in the event that they have a tie between two teams. And for definition purposes, remember a tie is the exact same number of wins losses. Number one, the team with the better head-to-head winning percentage during the regular season. Can't break it? Number two, the team with the best overall record in intra-division games. Now, there is an asterisk to this rule because your tie might involve two teams that are not in the same division. This rule will apply. So, an example, you might have the Cleveland Guardians and the Toronto Blue Jays tied. The Blue Jays being in the NL East, which we can agree that is a lot more difficult, have to determine their winning percentage versus other AL East teams, where the Cleveland Guardians, who are in the Central Division, have to calculate their percentages against other AL Central teams. Now, as of the recording of this particular moment, May 19th, 2022, there is one team, the Minnesota Twins, that is above 500 in the AL Central. Where, if you look at the AL East, there are three teams that are above 500. So winning percentages versus intradivision are going to be interesting. Now, if somehow we still have a tie, let's move to the third criteria, the team with the best overall record in intra-league games. Now, considering that both teams would be from the same league and would be tied, this is a great tiebreaker formula if we're going to use it, in my opinion. It should be number two. Screw the interdivision games, but you know what? Everything Major League Baseball does 
seems great until they actually try to implement it. And since we're talking about math, 11 out of 10 times execute poorly. Now, somehow, if you're still tied, number four, the team with the best record in the final 81 intra-league games of the season. Okay, we're still tied. Number five, the team with the best record in the final 82 intra-league games of the season, provided the game added is not between the tied teams, continue one game back until the tie is broken, intra-league games are skipped and ignored in this process. Wow. Way to turn something completely simple. You play and you play and let's see who wins. Major League Baseball has gone out and bestowed it upon themselves to do the fans a great service and create a rando formula to say this team is better than that team. Considering how up this formula is, we would have been better off going out and finding the top five averages of the top five players on each team that have the highest exit velocity over launch angle time stolen base and they would have found something because it doesn't really matter because Major League Baseball only cares about one thing and that's ensuring that the Yankees make the playoffs so that we can watch playoff baseball played in a Little League stadium. For as high tech as Major League Baseball is, have they ever gone to a tournament and seen a Sunday morning and watched kids get eliminated based on math formulas? Do they know how much controversy it causes on a Sunday morning? And I don't want to hear about the cost of traveling and shuttling teams all around to play one game. You have no problem increasing the price of MLB TV every year, making me watch 7,000 gambling commercials, and shoving advertisement down my throat. Spend the money and put a quality product on the field. In my opinion, there are three things that are killing baseball today. The first two are intertwined. The first one is the legalization of single-game betting on sporting events. Now, I say this because since we have legalized gambling, we have made it more tolerant and acceptable. So people are talking about it, no problem. It's part of the culture today. And that is pushing people to be perfect and expecting results based on calculations, which brings me to point number two. We're creating all these advanced analytics statistics based on somebody in somebody's basement creating a formula. People are expecting execution and not factoring in variables that they have no control over. If you want to watch perfect baseball that has eliminated as many external factors as possible, then go watch esports. Go watch your computer animated video games. And the third thing that is ruining baseball, the ideation that amateur players are professional major league athletes. It's not the same. There are so many other uncontrolled variables Stop trying to expect your kids to replicate what's going on on TV on your local ball field. Stop traumatizing your neighbors, young athletes, and officials with the way you comport yourself. By the end of this rant, I hope you realize, in my opinion, Major League Baseball doesn't seem to be able to get it right. So stop expecting kids, tournament officials, organization officials, in-game officials to be perfect. They're not People are going to make mistakes. And the sooner people realize that people make mistakes, the sooner we can move on and really enjoy the game again. Rant over. Now back to the show. Okay, Brian, let's move on from your on-field adventures in Baseball Canada to a little off-field. You mentioned that you worked eight championships as a supervisor. Share with us what the difference is between being an umpire and a supervisor at a Baseball Canada National Championship. There is, There definitely is a, 
a difference and uh, you have to keep yourself apart and separate from the group as a whole at times. When I say at times, you know, around the ballpark and at a social function, yes, you, you should be there and uh, you should be part of that group. But I try to stay away from you and your crew when they're going to supper or going for a beverage or whatever they're doing after the fact. Right. So, and that's their own time, they, and they can bond in their own way at, at that point in time. That's 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 my philosophy. So, right. um, as far as supervising concer- is concerned, I, I'm uh, I'm I'm not cri- overly critical. If 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 you're doing your job and everything is going tickety boo, I'm not going to say a whole bunch. Fair enough. That's that's my philosophy. Some people don't follow that, and that's up to them. Yep. And that everyone has their own philosophy and their own approach. And that's what makes us different and unique, but at the same time, the same, in my opinion. So if, if, if you want me to give some advice to umpires that are going to a national, maybe for the first time, find out who your supervisor is to find out their tendencies and what, what, what they like and what they don't like. That's, that's, that's my tip for the day. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. And yeah, you know what? Every tip for every umpire, a new umpire is always important to, to make that experience more enjoyable. And I'll ask, in your opinion, from being an umpire to being a supervisor, I mean, the Baseball Canada programs changed quite a bit over the years, but do you, did you find supervising a little bit more exhausting? Oh, absolutely. Umpiring was way easier than supervising as far as uh, mental, mentally. Holy crap, you'd, you'd go to the ballpark at whatever nine o'clock in the morning and you, you, you're lucky if you got home by 11 o'clock at night and that's providing the weather was good right i mean you have any weather issues i mean it just Fine. and then you then you're involved with the, the committee and you know making decisions and you know it, it, it can be all encompassing so yes the, as far as the, the difference between umpiring and, and supervising it's way easier to umpire way easier because I look at that ter- picture from 97, you had two supervisors. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think today at the Canada Games, they're going to send four, like the manpower, well, the, the person the power. Phantom, uh, Phil, they're sending five. Right. You got 15 umpires and five supervisors now. And, and I, I mean, I think this is only fair to the supervisors because you don't want to gas somebody. It, it, but they are voluntary. If you, have, if you have weather issues, you're still going to have those time problems. So. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. There's certain things that you can't avoid, but at the same time too, you can delegate, like again, let's go to the chief supervisor. They can go and deal with that stuff and everyone else can go do their job and everyone kind of has a, a smaller job rather than one one person doing the whole job. Now, when, when you say there was only two, there were obviously times that, 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 that there were gaps in those games that there was no supervisor oh, there. No question. It, it had to happen. Yeah. They were either in between or... Yeah, I think depending on what championship nowadays, the goal is not to have that, but you never know what's yeah. going to happen. I mean, you, you... Well, that's that's why they have five in some of these now. Okay, Brian, let's move on from Baseball Canada and get into some of the juicy stuff of your career. We know that you have some international experience under your belt. How many championships have you worked? I've participated in seven. Wow, seven. Share with us then. Where was your first one? The first two were in Brandon. And again... Maybe the only reason I, I got to go was because they were in Brandon. That, that was the, f- the first and the third year of the inaugural World Juniors okay. tournament. 
And Canada won the first one in Brandon that year. 91, former leading edge guest here. Blaise LeVay was part of that team. Yep. Yep. Stubby Klopp, Stubby Klopp was on that team. Oh, yeah. Stubby was key for that team. Also on that team, current president of Baseball Canada, Jason Dixon. Yeah, there were some good ball players on that team. Oh, yeah. I believe that Baseball Canada team is the only team to ever win a world championship. I think you're right. I think you're right. So, yeah. That what was a big, big deal. Oh, I can imagine. I, big deal. The Americans had all kinds of big, big league players on their on their team. All kinds of them. Greg Lazinski's kid was on it. Uh, one of the Boons was on it. Yeah, Aaron Boone, I believe. I think I think yep. the manager of the New York Yankees. Yep. Yep. There, there were some good ball players there. Yeah. Anyway, those are the first two. I did a another World Junior in Sherbrooke, Quebec. That's three. I did the Pan Am Games in Winnipeg. I did the Olympics. That's five. The other two, I did a world qualifier in Panama. And I did an Olympic qualifier in Phoenix. That was the seven. And you did the Olympics. That's the big and one. The and the Olympics. Okay, let's talk umpiring in Panama. What was different about umpiring in Panama compared to umpiring here in Canada? Okay, yeah, that, that, there's a heck of a difference. <laughs> uh, when we went to Panama, first of all, it wasn't considered a high-ranking uh, tournament. So the Americans, for instance, and Canada, for instance, did not put a high priority on sending their best guys. Okay. The, the, the time of the year just did not dictate. It was like December. So they did not put a high priority on sending their best guys. So that's number one. As far as the umpiring was concerned, the weather, that was hurricane season. Oh, wow. Every day, like I went down there, full expectations that every day was going to be in the 90s and I'm going to need slathering of sunscreen, blah, blah, blah. Well, it was low-hanging cloud and mist virtually the whole time I was there. So it, it, these misty little showers would come in, like like Hawaii. I don't know if you've ever been to Hawaii, these misty little showers would come in and you'd have to stop. And then you'd start, and then you'd stop, and then you'd start. Oh, fun. So that was continuous. As far as the umpires were concerned, there was me from Canada. There was a guy from Venezuela. There was a guy from Cuba. There was a guy from Puerto Rico and a guy from Mexico. And we were the the big shooters. Okay. Like we're the, we're the international guys. The rest of the crew was made up of local guys, and there—I—I I swear to God, there must—I'm not even sure. I never—I don't—I probably never met them all. I bet you there was 25 of them. They just show so up at the park. You—they sh would send you a schedule, and you would know you're—you would have a game at nine o'clock in the morning, and you have another one at seven o'clock at night. So there, my name would be there with the Cuban. My name would be there with the Puerto Rican. The other two spots were blank so you'd show up for your game and there'd be two guys sitting in the dressing room <laughs> that's how it worked and and they didn't speak english it was difficult and you don't you didn't, you didn't know how good they were you had nope. no idea and and the other like the puerto rican guy and the cuban guy could talk to them and they treated these guys like dirt mm. i mean i'm i'm a, a big shooter they were not <laughs> big shooter 
you know, whether I was or I wasn't, uh, that's the way I was treated. Kind of reminds me of a story that we had back on another guest that come on and they said that they went to an international event. They were working with the local crew like yourself. And what happened was it got hot around the third, fourth inning. One of the umpires just left the field, eventually sauntered back for the ninth inning. And he asked, where did you go? And he said, it's hot. Got to have a nap. <laughs> yeah. So the local guy went and just had a nap because when it's hot and it's local, people just nap. <laughs> <laughs> so like, Okay. I, I, that, that doesn't surprise me. The other thing that I remember so vividly is, I mean, this, this tournament was like a two week tournament. Uh, and Panama treated it like the World Series. I mean, uh, what, what was the Yankees relief pitcher from Panama? The Mariano Pan Rivera. And he was he was he was playing. I mean, they had their their roster was loaded with major league guys. Everybody else didn't. But the the one thing I remember is was it was a long tournament, and they had payday every four or five days. So <laughs> I got cash. Okay. I mean, there was no big deal. I, I was getting whatever, whatever. I had no idea what was coming to me. Every once in a while, I, I would get three or $400 in U.S. cash. Well, these guys, these local guys, they would sit in this room for hours waiting for their pay because for them, oh, yeah. $100, $200, I mean, that's like six months' salary right. for what they did during the day. I mean, it was incredible what what they would do for that money. But, oh, goes to speak how fortunate we are where we are. Oh, absolutely. I'm sitting here making a podcast on technology that costs and kind of take it for granted. And people in the, this world that do the same thing we do every day, but they work hard for it. What was travel like down there? Getting to and from? Well, I, I, they, they sent me first class and that was in the days. Big shooter. Oh, I was a big shooter, you know. <laughs> I flew from Winnipeg to Minneapolis to Houston, Panama City. And it was all first class. Oh. I was getting steak on the plane with a <laughs> bottle of wine. It was unbelievable. Really. Oh, send me to Panama anytime, he says. <laughs> oh, I got to tell you this other story. The the, the countries that like the, the countries that were in the tournament. I mean, they had there was Guatemala, there was Honduras, I mean, uh, uh, Costa Rica, Ecuador. There were some pretty poor baseball countries that right. were there, and and they all had an umpire there. I got to admit, and, and believe it or not, some of them had outside protectors on the balloon. If if you can believe that, there there was a couple guys that had that. So we're talking, uh, I don't know, that was probably about 2005, something, you know, so it's yep. 15, 16 years ago, not that long ago. No. And uh, these guys, and the Venezuelan, I always remember because the Venezuelan was one of the big shooters. And the rooms are all this, the typical Adobe walls, you know, and you go into his room or one of the, these other, he was, it was a 24 hour clinic happening. <laughs> in their rooms so you'd walk into their rooms and he'd have diagrams drawn all over the wall of you know vampiring situations yeah, yeah. you know movements and angles and you know blah 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 it was, it was they would have had to repaint all these rooms i suspect <laughs> a beautiful mind coming up with just a <laughs> equation after equation <laughs> but going back to that and thinking 
wow, you know, there's people that take this game seriously no matter where they are in the world. It's just, it just unites umpires. Oh, it did. That particular story, it, it was the best, best thing that these guys had ever had happen to them in their umpire careers. And they, they saw an opportunity and looked to seize on it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's 2000, you say 2005-ish. Yeah, something like that. It, it was uh, the lead up to the World Championships, which is lead up to the 2008 Olympics. Okay. Because it all kind of ran together. So a little while later, you get to go to work the Olympic qualifier. That was in Phoenix, yeah. When when was that? Uh, that was in 2006, I believe, the next very next year. I got a phone call from Jim Baba. You know, it was probably about the first of December. Okay. He said, what are you doing? What are you doing next week? Well, <laughs> I got a curl on Thursday night. <laughs> <laughs> How would you like to go to Phoenix? <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. What, do you want me, what do you want me to do in Phoenix? <laughs> yeah, yeah, <exactly. laughs> What's in Phoenix? <laughs> anyway, it was it was the first Olympic qualifier, and there was a. Uh, Canada, there was U.S., there was Mexico, there was Panama, Dominican, I can't remember. There were Guatemala was even there, I believe. So anyway, that's that's. I was one of the big international umpires again at that tournament. Here we go again, big shooter, big shooter. Yeah, but but okay, flying. I, I talked about you want me to get into this. Okay, well, wait, wait, wait. Well, we, let's. How, how do you get there? Are you still flying first class, or did you oh, drop yeah. your status? It, absolutely, it was the same thing, except it was Minneapolis to Phoenix. So, <laughs> okay, so you get there first class. You get off the plane. Completely different atmosphere. Then, I mean, it's it's oh, Phoenix. Yeah. You've been you've been to Arizona before. Oh yeah. You know, yeah, you, weather, you know the food. The was great. It's, it's why people go to Phoenix. The weather was superb. The diamonds were beautiful. We played in all the spring training diamonds, and it was gorgeous. Umpire caliber that was there. I mean, this is now the next level up. Share with me. There was me. There was a guy from Mexico, a guy from Panama, a guy from Brazil. We were the international umpires. The rest of the umpire crew was made up of the top AAA guys coming out of the Arizona Fall League, which had just wrapped up. Okay. So these were the ten best prospects in the in the in the major league system for umpires. These are the guys who were one step from from doing major league games. Okay. They're all thirty to thirty two years old. Still in that young prime, and you're just about mm-hmm. to see them on TV. One thing I should say about them, though, as I said, they were thirty to thirty two years old. I don't I don't think any of them were married. They had been away from home. They were from all over the country, right? They had right. been away from home since the spring training, which was, you know, 10, 11 months prior. That was the last place that they wanted to be. Oh, yeah, no question. No question. Any of the umpires at that event now working Major League Baseball? Of the 10 guys, I'm only aware of three that actually made it. Mike Estabrook, okay. Adrian Johnson, and Scott Berry. Fair enough. Now, those guys are all well within to their career now. They're all like 45 years old now. Yep. Maybe maybe more. But there, as I, I'm, those are the only three that I'm aware of that actually made it. Did you get to work with any of those three? Oh, yeah. yeah absolutely, I did. I got to work with all of them. They, they, they made sure that uh, 
In fact, I would say that of the 10 guys, every game there was three of those guys were on the field together at every game. Okay. And they would stick me with one crew and and the Panama guy with another one and then it was it was mixed up all the time. But right. uh, Richie Garcia was the was the supervisor. Oh really? He he and uh, uh Alfonso Marquez. The ump- the active umpire right now? He's his assistant. <laughs> really? So he was a he was a probably a ten or twelve year guy by at that point. This is two thousand five you say this? Uh two thousand six. Interestingly enough, I was watching some retro games the other day, and what was it? The Yankees and the Red Sox in the ALCS in what two thousand three when Don Zimmer and Pedro yeah. Martinez. That he showed he was the plate umpire yeah. in one of the games. So, so yeah, he would have been around a while. So he had some status. Yeah. yeah, he was. In fact, we went to his house to play Texas Hold'em one night. Thank God he you had, said you're playing cards. You weren't going to play PlayStation or something. <laughs> Oh, yeah. That was when Texas Holden was just coming in. He had us over to his house, and uh, he was that was what he put on the TV, was those Red Sox-Yankee <laughs> games. <laughs> Look at me. Look yeah, at yeah, me. yeah, yeah, exactly. Eh? Just like Bruce Springsteen said, was it glory days? <laughs> so you got to go to Alfonso Marquez's house to play Texas Holden poker instead of yep. going to your Thursday night curling event. Yep, that's what I did. <laughs> Tell me, did you did you clean the table that night or what? Uh, I don't think. Well, no, we were playing pretty pretty low low t- stakes. So uh, no, I didn't clean the table. Well, then I'm not going to throw Alphonse under the bus. But is he a good host at least? Yes, he was. Good. He was a good host. He brought over a couple of his buddies, which were uh, like Ted Barrett came over. Really? Like, these these are all the uh, the Phoenix guys. Uh, okay. That were that were there that lived there in the off season. Met him two or three times while we were there. Interesting. And is he, is he as big as he is on TV? Uh, he absolutely is. <laughs> <laughs> he absolutely is. You're down there. You get a call on a the Saturday before, whatever, week before, and all of a sudden you're down here now getting this experience. Did you get to work any plates? Now, I ask that simply because you talk, there's always three guys on the field. Did, the, yeah, did you rotate did. positions or how did oh, that yeah. work? Yeah, Richie Garcia asked me. He said flat out. He says, "No, this is we we know we know what the international guys are, and there's there was only two or three of us that he really, really trusted. Okay, uh, but he trusted his ten guys, right? Oh, no question. So, yep. So they did most of the plates, and he asked me right, flat out, "Do you want to do a plate?" And and if I had said no, it doesn't matter to me, he probably wouldn't have given me one. But I said, you know what? I'm here. I want to do a plate. So the, I did one plate, and it was U.S. I mean, they had who's who, like Jared Weaver pitched. Okay. I mean, at that time, he was throwing, you know, 100 mile an hour, but he was on a pitch count. So, I mean, he threw, I don't know, 40, 50 pitches, and he was done, and they bring in the next guy. I mean, that the American team was drawn from, uh, from the Arizona Fall League as well. Yeah, I mean, you look at that team. I think, what, Billy Butler was on that team? Yeah. You know, uh, J- let's talk. We're talking Red Sox. Jarrah Saltalamacchia. Saltalamacchia was yeah. the catcher that yeah. day. Shane Victorino. Yep. And then J- Jeff Mathis was another catcher who had, who yeah. had some time. And Howie Kendrick. Uh, yeah, they had, there were some really good ballplayers on that team. Yeah. Some of them made it, some of them didn't. And then the manager for that team, Davey Johnson. Davey Johnson was on that team. Talk about seeing players 
right before they're kind of hitting their prime and you get that opportunity to go do that. So cool. Well, I mean, again, these 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 are the big bonus babies. I mean, they're all first round draft picks of whatever major league team they belong to. So they were all the major league guys were there protecting their their boys, you know. Right. So, yeah. So they made sure that Jared Weaver wasn't going to pitch more than 40 pitches kind of thing. So and considering who they're playing in that tournament, let's be honest, yeah, Guatemala, I, Nicaragua. They were playing. Uh, my game was Mexico. It was Mexico, so Mexican was was a good match for them. Yeah, yeah. And and realistically, I don't even know who won the tournament. I mean, I can't even remember. That's how how little it really meant in the long the, right. the big scheme of things. Now, I think all those games would have been played about one o'clock in the afternoon. Was it hot in that Phoenix heat? Not in December. No. We played in the Cubs Stadium. We played in Milwaukee Stadium, the Oakland A's uh, spring training facility. Uh, that was the three, I believe. Wow. So cool. Now, you mentioned that you might have received a little bit of cash from when you were down in Panama. Was there still cash there? Or? Well, that was a little interesting, too, because as the international guys, you know, when you go to your pre-tournament meeting, the the supervisor in this case richie garcia had all the envelopes and so we're i'm getting my envelope and i'm opening it up and as long as well as the mexican guy and the panama guy and the dominican guy and oh oh it's like, like seven or eight hundred dollars in u.s cash per diems well that was that was our money for the tournament right it was big money i mean yeah. that's a lot of money well the triple a guys got diddly squat <laughs> Oh. That was part. That was part of their salary. They they were told. Well, <laughs> you should have seen the looks in their faces when, you know, this guy from Brazil has got eight hundred U S cash, and then Adrian Johnson's got nothing. Well, I mean, looking back at the other story, even if they sat around the room for a few hours, there was going to be no money that magically showed up. <laughs> I I should laugh. Those guys got it hard, but it's. It, it, you got to laugh at it somehow. <laughs> I think Adrian's laughing these days. These days, and Mike and Scott and well, Adrian Johnson. If you if you see right now, he's acting he's an crew act, chief, isn't acting he? crew chief at times. So he's tenured now. Like he what? has that twenty years experience. Well, he's been in the major leagues for. He went into the major leagues virtually right after that. Yeah, I so. think he got called up in about '06. Yep, that would be about right. Right after that, I mean, the next season, yep. he would have got his call. So, I mean, he has 20 years. These are the guys that are the next the next senior guys. Yeah. Generational. I like to use the term quite frequently. They're the next generation of umpires that we're going to see leading yep. the helm. Especially as some of these older guys. I mean, I think retirement's happening at an earlier and earlier in age in Major League Baseball. Like Joe well, West hanging on a little bit, like, let's be honest, and Jerry hung well, on. He was going for the record. And, and you look at the, some of the games you're watching right now, Phil, and who are the best guys that you're watching? It's the guys like Stu Sherwater. I mean, the, those are the best umpires right now. It's not the Phil, the Tom Hallians and the <laughs> those no. kind of guys. They're the crew chiefs, but the best umpires are the guys that are, you know, 40. Yep, the Quinn Wilcox, the Stu Sherwaters, like you mentioned, Trip Gibsons, uh, Chris Siegel. Mike, yep. Mike Muchlinski's. I mean, and, and nothing against the older guys. It's just these new guys, I'm going to say, can umpire to what's expected today. It's hard to unlearn what you've learned over the years. Mm -hmm. and, and, yeah, I agree. I, I, I agree. You know, the, the older guys learn game management. I think game management, is with the advent of replay, is completely <laughs> different. It's gone away a little bit. You're right. 
and those guys would be would be able to handle game management on a whole different level. And I think the new guys might struggle a little bit in some sense because they are never really challenged in the same way. Yep, I agree. Now, I wish I would have asked this earlier because I want to ask. You were in Winnipeg in 99 at the Pan Am Games. I was. We talked 92 being a big year for Baseball Canada, but I think that championship in Winnipeg was a very big championship for Baseball Canada. They come home with a bronze medal, if memory serves me correctly. That is correct. And I can remember watching that game Monday afternoon, evening, Canada versus USA, televised on, I think, TSN. Might have been one of the only games televised that whole championship. Stubby clap. Oh, God. It's a little it was blooper. a check swing. <laughs> yeah. it, it was like he hit a nine-run home run. It was, that's how big of a deal it was. I can imagine that Winnipeg Stadium just go nuts. I hear it's a pretty good stadium to umpire in, and there's quite the atmosphere there. Well, it was brand spanking new at that point, too. That was really the first event that uh, that it, that it uh, hosted. And, uh, and the weather was perfect. So everything was going, and Canada had a good team, and they were doing well. So they were, everything went well. Oh. But that game also, I probably has some of the highest controversy in baseball Canada history, in my opinion, with Ernie Witt getting the old heave ho earlier in the game. Yeah. Well, what was it like being the local umpire, the Canadian umpire on the crew? And maybe before we get into it, to give people a little backstory to that, international baseball at the time, way different than what baseball is right now. I think it's fair to say at the major league level, today we're all used to limited trips. And when I say trips, I mean managerial or coaches' trips to the mound. And I say that because in major league baseball, you could go visit your pitcher once an inning. Of course, if you went out the second time and during the inning, a coach or a manager, pitcher had to be removed. But you could do that once every inning. But at that time, in international baseball, a manager or a coach could only have three trips a game. After the third subsequent trip in a game to any pitcher, the pitcher had to be removed. So you could burn all three trips in the first three innings, first inning, second inning, third inning. Every trip after that, if you visit any pitcher, the pitcher had to come out of the game. This, of course, designed to keep the game moving and to speed up the game, especially in tournament play. Yes, but the the problem in that particular game is that game went into extra innings. Right. So... Nobody was really sure what the, the trip issue, how many trips you're allowed once extra innings started. So they got one person said this and one person said that, and nobody was really sure. But anyway, he got thrown out of the game, and he want, they wanted to protest. That was, and the funny part was, at that, and they still, to this day, when there's a protest, you've got to come up with the, with the cash, right? Right, the, right away. <laughs> And, and nobody had U.S. cash but Ernie, except Ernie Witt's wife. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the only way they would take it. That's all right. So they, it was, I don't know, five or 600 bucks. It, was, it wasn't just a 25 bucks. It was a lot of money. A lot of money. I can't even remember exactly how it turned out. Do you, do you know how it turned out? Well, I don't think they, I don't, I think, I don't think they really entertained it. I think they took the money, but didn't really entertain oh, it. Oh, yeah, they always take the Oh, well, that's, I, <laughs> no, that's what I say. They always take the money, but I think that, I don't think they entertained the protest because no. there was nothing to protest. He was ejected. Yeah, yeah. Once you're, yeah. and he was ejected for his, for his composure. You can't protest that. That's non-protestable. And. What are you re- what are you really protesting that he wouldn't let you come out and visit your pitcher? 
and yeah. you've just so. you just delayed the game. I think. Oh, I bet it was twenty minute delay. I think. Well, I think he. One of the news articles I've read, he delayed the game by about ten minutes before he was ejected. Yeah, that could I, be. I think the and yeah, the, and so this here here we got a rule that's intended to speed up the game, and <laughs> and here it actually slowed down. Well, thankfully. Because it was Canada, of course, in the international play, uh, I wasn't anywhere near the ball field. So. <laughs> yeah, with the, no question, maybe right? That was a good, maybe that was a good thing. <laughs> because I think Ernie Witt was quoted as saying, I guess they make the rules up as they go. And by they, of course, he was referring to the umpiring crew. In essence, I think that was what was actually happening because <laughs> they, they changed it. But because it was extra ratings, that was a problem. And whatever the confusion was, for our listeners, if you're really interested in looking or reliving that history, check out a link in our show description. There's going to be an article from the Associated Press dated July 27th, 1999, titled Fuming, Beaming, and Blowing It at Pan American Games. Now, since we're talking about links in the show description, I'm also going to throw up another one. I might have done it before, but it's going to be a link to the famous stubby clap bloop single into left center field. It's a great Canadian baseball moment, so let's share it again. So again, check out the show description for that link as well. But like a good baseball game, Brian, let's keep this moving. Because we've heard this name here on the show before. Nelson Diaz might have been one of the umpires. That yeah, he, was, he, was the, he was the home plate umpire that day, the Cuban, Cuban umpire. Yeah, and he had a little bit of an English issue too. So, I mean, balls and strikes and outs and safes and game management, he's rock solid. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I imagine down there in Cuba, there there can be some yeah. hotheads. Yeah. But yeah, I've always wanted to hear a little inside perspective of what it was like to be in the umpire room surrounding that little, because I'm sure the guys were talking about that after the game. Yes, yes. Sir. That was, well, you saw it on TV and that was a big deal, but Canada-wide. Yep. And, and they, I don't know whether they had actually that great of a team that year, but I mean, they had some decent players, but nothing like what, what Cuba had or, or U.S. I mean, they were just loaded. I mean, I think the big deal in that game, let's be honest, it's like the opening game of the tournament or like the right at the start of the tournament, and there's still a potential for Canada to do well. But they're playing Team USA, and they beat them. Like, yes. That's at that point. And even today, Dude. USA baseball numbers-wise is bigger than Baseball Canada. Numbers. Do you want to hear some of the names? And I wrote some of the names down here from the – that U.S. team, and this will this will just they had a, a left-handed pitcher. They called him the little unit, so you can imagine what he was. Ryan Anderson was his name, and he was about six foot ten left-hander. Yeah, uh, Milton Bradley. Do you remember that name? Yes. How could he not? Right. He was the guy that you know jumped up and down at first base and blew his knee out because he didn't like the call. Yeah. <laughs> Adam Kennedy was on that team. Uh, Matt Lacroix, uh, Mark Muller. J.C. Romero, uh, Brad Penny. Brad Penny pitched the gold medal game. Uh, and then the, uh, the manager for... Uh, L.A. Dodgers. He was a left fielder. Um, Dave Roberts. Dave Roberts, right. He was on that team. I mean, they, they were just absolutely loaded. Well, I mean, look at even Cuba. Cuba goes on to win that championship, and they beat Team USA in the final. But Cuba had a pitcher by the name of Jose Contreras. I mean, oh. Ho- Jose Contreras, he's an... He's a Pan Am champion. Mm-hmm. He's an Olympic champion, and he's also a World Series champion. Mm-hmm. He was probably thirty years old when he was pitching in that Pan Am Games. Really, I, I, 
could have to look it up, but I, he was no kid. But I think he had, a, I think he had a late career himself too. I think he went for a long time. Oh yes, uh, he played well into his forties. Yep. Uh, Omar Linares was on that team. Uh, Pedro Lazo, Ariel Pestano, German Mesa, Arestes Kindelan. It was their big home run hitter. They they had a powerhouse, just mm. a powerhouse. Yeah, and big men, big men. Just so cool to hear stories about. You know, an amateur guy from Manitoba works his way up, gets his, gets the opportunity, and then get to work with these guys. It's just so cool. Well, you know what? I was I was selected to do the gold medal plate, and I wasn't able to do it because the Cubans on the technical committee wanted a Spanish guy. So and, me and Ozzy got switched. And and this and this is the politics that really does happen at certain <laughs> levels. Let's be honest. Uh, Absolutely, absolutely. You know, it's unfortunate you have stories, but the other, but the stories there, there, it just, you, you go for the opportunity and you let the dice fall where they fall, right? You no, know, it was, it was great. The best baseball I'd ever done. Or from your experience on the international scene playing the big Texas Hold'em, let the cards fall where they may. Yep. Well, that concludes this episode of The Leading Edge, where we talk with umpires about umpiring and look to cover topics on both sides of the plate. Due to the length of the interview with Ryan, the decision was made to split the interview into two episodes for listening pleasure and quality. Now in saying that, we would always welcome you back to listen to the second half of the interview with Brian, where we deep dive into some more of his international experiences, such as the 2008 Olympics in Beijing, China. We also discuss working professional independent baseball, his various accolades and awards over the years, and of course, everybody's favorite, 10 questions. Now, before you go, we would like to leave you with this. There's a common rule myth that people believe if a fielder catches a fly ball and then falls over the fence, it is a home run. Her question is, what happens if they drop the ball? Take care, everybody, and stay safe.